You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Hey Cliff, how's it going? It's going great, Bobo. How are you doing today? Excellent. Excellent. What makes it so excellent? I just feel good today and it's sunny out and stuff's going in the right direction and my curse is broken. I'm in, I'm in my good luck phase, so I'm going to ride that as long as I can. Yeah, yeah, you got you're the luckiest person I know by far. However, uh luck as you know, better than anybody, luck comes in two flavors, good and bad, and you have been um you have an overdose of both of those in your life on a regular basis. Yeah, it makes for a more exciting life, I suppose. I suppose. I don't know how you handle the stress, but I guess that's way more stressful. Yeah, I have no idea how you do it, man, because my life goes pretty smoothly and I'm super stressed out all the time. And and yours is like, hey, I just found a thousand dollar bill on the floor. And like, and then like a minute or two later, somebody steals it from you because <laughs> you left it on your dashboard in your car at the gas station. Dude, oh my God. I just, I got so lucky I didn't get ripped off again just recently. I left, I left my door unlocked like at a crappy spot. I was running in this store real fast and came out and the doors like the windows were halfway down my phone was sitting right there like electronic equipment in the back seat and i was just like oh how could i have done that but so my good luck held nothing got ripped off this time that is good yeah that, that is in the forefront of my mind whenever I, I like i need to lend you a piece of gear or something like that like when you went to montana and you wanted to borrow one of my therms it's like oh god all right bobo my love for you outweighs my fear of your luck but i'm super careful with, with uh everyone else's stuff Oh, I know, I know. You have, I know you are. You've never let me down yet. You know, it, it, it's been it's some scary situations, and never once have you uh, failed me. So, you have my complete trust. So, thank you. You're welcome. So, anyways, I was going to say uh, we finished up that Robbie Knievel shoot for his other this other movie we're working on with him, like documentary of him looking into mysterious things. And through that, last year I got to know this guy Sam, who was a witness of a squatch back in I think it was '97 up in Shasta, Whiskey Town Lake. And it's a, it's a good, it, it's a really cool setting in the fact that of the behavioral aspects, because I mean, everyone, I mean, we all know the story. It ran across the road in front of the car, which tells us nothing other than that there was a time and place. There was a Sasquatch seen it passing in a car. You don't really learn anything, but Sam's sighting showed some interesting behavior and his, and what he felt was going on was, was, a uh, you know, not too common of a sighting, it's, what he saw was not unheard of. It's just not that usual because people don't get extended looks like this. So anyways, we got Sam on the line now. And so Sam, meet Cliff. What's up, Cliff? How you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks so much for joining us on Bigfoot and Beyond today. Oh, it's my pleasure to talk to you guys. I'm, I'm going to, it's going to be a lot of fun. I, I already know it. <laughs> rad, rad. And, you know, I'm so glad Bobo actually uh, kind of prefaced your sighting with that because um, uh, Bigfoot sightings are usually, yeah, it ran across the road, took three steps, and I never saw it again. And, 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 and that's, of course, it's life-changing for a witness to see something like that. You know, their whole paradigm shifts in a moment. Um, they're, they're left befuddled, like wondering what they saw. And then it's, for a lot of people, it leads them down this new road of Bigfoot that they'd never considered before. But really, for us seasoned researchers, Bobo and I, and a handful of other people, it's just another dot on the map. And so, because at the end of the day, sighting reports are essentially where and when. That's the information that's valuable, unless, like in your case, 
there's some sort of interesting behavior that can be observed and documented. Um, and that, that's pretty rare because most of the time the behavior is it left. And that's really about it. You know, so we know Sasquatches leave the area. But um, I'm, so I'm so eager to hear about your encounter and what you observed. So uh, why don't you take us back and set up the, the scene? Like where were you and when were you there and why and all that other stuff? Just tell us the story and we'll kind of butt in with questions as you go. Right. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned behavior because I, I think we're coming to a point where we can kind of make a patchwork and, and kind of create a behavioral profile of Sasquatch. And I think that's important moving forward. Um, as Bobo said, this was in Shasta County. Uh, this was this would have actually been the summer of 95, I think, or 96. Um, I was 17 years old. Uh, a friend of mine and I were hanging out in Reading at about two o'clock in the morning uh, just one of those just hot as hell Redding summer evenings. And, uh, you know, because they call Redding that hot little hellhole on the way to Oregon. So I thought I was the only one who called it that. Yeah, apparently not. I've heard other people say it. So <clears throat> we were hanging out, just bored out of our minds, a couple of bored 17 year old kids. And uh, we were completely sober. I want to make that just clear right off the bat. So my friend and I, decided to go up to Whiskey Town Lake to a popular beach where our friends would often hang out, a, a beach called Brandy Creek. Now, if, if the listeners want to look on Google Maps, I can show you the exact spot where my encounter happened. Um, just, just Google, just search for uh, Whiskey Town Lake and Google Maps and Brandy Creek Beach. And you will see a rectangular parking lot off to the left side of the road. So we go up there. I, you know, I, I pull into the parking lot. I can immediately tell there's nobody there because the parking lot is completely deserted. I pull into the spot closest to the pathway where you would access the beach. Uh, on the left, there is a stand of pine trees. On the right, there's a little structure. You can see it from above on Google Maps. That's a uh, concession stand slash restroom area. So we start walking down to the beach uh, between these two things and... I see that there's a figure squatting at the shoreline and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of talking to my friend about it, like, Oh, what's going on down there? And my friend immediately got a little sketchy about it. Like he was sketched out about this. So he stayed behind the whole time. He didn't go any further. So unfortunately he didn't witness this part of, uh, of the experience later. He did witness something and I'll, I'll, I'll get into that in a moment. So, I, I, I'm telling my friend, oh, there's somebody down there. So I, I go a little further, and and I'm just seeing what looks like this human shape squatting at the, at the shoreline. Uh, I could immediately tell that there was something not quite right about this. I, the, this. I could tell it wasn't normal. This wasn't just a person. But in those days... Bigfoot was not on my mind, so I was telling myself, oh, this is just a person, because it's shaped like a person, it's squatting there like a person, so, you know, it's just a person. So, so I, I tell him, you know, there's somebody down there, you know, what's what's going on? So I, I go a little further, I go back to him, I, I you know, talk to him for a minute, then I, I then he's he's really sketched out, and so I, I go back by myself to toward this figure, and this time I'm, you know, I'm no farther than 20 feet away from him. That's that's a conservative estimate. Uh, I, I, I could have been anywhere between 15 and 20 feet away from, from this individual. And I'm standing directly behind it. 
and I can see it just squatting there. And it, with its right hand, it's just kind of twirling something around in the water. Very the, the whole time from the from the first moment I saw this individual up until this moment. I had had this impression of sadness coming from this thing. It, it was it was acting kind of pouty, like like a dejected child, like a child who had been scolded. Uh, and, and so, and and as I approached, I did hear this whimpering sound, like this 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 sound kind of like you know, just kind of the most pathetic sound you could hear. But it, it happened in this moment where I wasn't really sure what was happening. So I wasn't fully processing this sound that it made, but I did, I did see its body language and this whole dejected posture of it. Like I, I just had this overwhelming sense of sadness coming from this individual. So as I said, I'm, I'm at this point, 15 to 20 feet behind it. And, uh, I, I call to it. I'm like, Hey, what are you doing? And, and right at that point, it straightens its back. It, it erects its posture and uh, th- like I said, this is two o'clock in the morning. There's no artificial light anywhere. The night was brightly lit with moonlight. I could see the moonlight on the water and I could see this individual's silhouette on the water. And as it erected its posture, I could see a number of things. First of all, I could see just the massive width of its shoulders. Secondly, I could see this ridiculous trapezius muscle. Uh, like uh, it, it, it was just, it was like there was no neck it was like from its shoulders to its head it was all trapezius muscle and uh and as it erected its posture i could see the the hair separate on its shoulders so i could see at that point that it was uniformly covered in dark hair and it could be that as it was erecting its posture its hair was actually bristling like a dog would you know if it felt threatened um or it could just be that the hair separated naturally as it straightened itself. I don't know, but I do know that, like I said, at that point I could see that it was uniformly covered in hair. So it straightened its, its back and then it looked over its right shoulder at me. And as it did so, the first thing I noticed about its head was that it appeared boxy to me. It looked, it looked boxy. That was, that was a word that popped into my head right at that moment. Uh, it's, it, it looked square. And of course, I've learned since then that this fits perfectly with the conical shape of the head and the sagittal crest. Uh, but I, at that point, it just hit me as boxy looking. So I'm seeing the profile of its face. I could see a heavy brow ridge. I could see a nose, but a nose that was proportionately smaller than a human's nose. It would have been closer to the face than a human nose. And uh, that was about all I could see of the face. So it's, it's looking at me over its right shoulder. It just kind of takes a minute, and then it just turns right back to the to what it was doing, and just starts twirling this thing back around in the water, like it just it couldn't care less that I was there. Um, so that that was the, the 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 extent of the encounter. But the the main thing about this for me was this overwhelming sense of sadness that came from this thing, and, and it's twirling this thing around in the water. It, it looked like some limp, slack piece of garbage. I, I don't know what it was twirling around. It could have been food. It could have been anything. If this had happened at the ocean, I would have thought, oh, maybe this is a piece of seaweed or something that it's it's twirling around. But we weren't at the ocean. We were at an inland lake. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I've, I've speculated about this. What, what, what could have been going on? Um, I felt that 
or I, I, I felt later after all of this, that this may have been an older adolescent, you know, like on the verge of adulthood, a male, uh, a male on the verge of adulthood, but still immature. Cause I, this, this dejected feeling and posture and behavior that I got from this thing, uh, it, it just seemed a little immature to me. Like he just got busted by his parents for streaking in front of cars on like 299, just wait until the car got close and running in front of it to freak him out. Yeah. If, if that's not projection, Bobo, I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like that sounds a lot like something Bobo would do in in his adolescence. So, so maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe this is like the squash version of Bobo. You know, I mean, speaking of which, I'm I'm kind of waiting for the day when ancestry DNA can can tell us, oh, well, you're like 0.2% Sasquatch, and so I'm I'm waiting for Bobo to do his ancestry DNA and and to see how much how much see how much Sasquatch DNA Bobo has. <laughs> I don't know if Bobo's interested in doing DNA tests. You never know like what might come out later, you know? I don't know, a lot of back child support. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's true. That's a very good point. Okay, so like, so the, the basically, it lo- you, you're positive that this... Now, here, you're, it saw you, right? Did it ever look right at you, or did, did it just use its peripheral vision? It just used its peripheral vision. And, and I've thought about this. You know, I think its nonchalant approach to me must indicate that, like I said, this was a busy beach. You know, people went there all the time. People were hanging out there during the day. Um, you know, swimming, barbecuing, and whatnot. I'm I'm thinking this individual must have watched human activity at the beach during the day and was thoroughly accustomed to seeing people there. So when he saw me, it wasn't such a big deal. He, he knew that I wasn't a threat. You know, you he knew that I was a young human. Not you know, I, I think he had had been able to gauge human behavior and and. Uh, ascertain that you're not a threat anyway well sure yeah no that's interesting i interrupt real fast i'm sorry uh, uh that is interesting about it using its peripheral vision because that's one of the takeaways from the bigfoot research project peter burns deal out in the um in the dowels um where, where he uh, was funded to look into bigfoot stuff and he basically collected a lot of reports and whatnot and one of the things that he mentioned in his um and one of the papers he produced after the fact is that uh, these things often don't look directly at the witness. They look uh, maybe 90 degrees away and use their peripheral vision to check out what's going on um, a little bit more than say humans might uh, do, which I think is a super interesting and very subtle observation on your part uh, of the, of this creature's behavior. Right. I'm wondering if most of the time though, when they use their peripheral vision, if that is accompanying a fleeing action, like they're going to just look at you for a split second out of the corner of their eye and then, and then run away or walk away. Is that not the case? Well, a lot of times, uh, um, like I remember one report, and again, this is from the Bigfoot Research Project back in the day in one of Peter's published things, um, uh, the, the, the Sasquatch basically was walking by a window and I think, or from, I think it was a window and somebody was looking out of the window and saw this thing and the Sasquatch just simply stopped and turned his head ever so slightly. So it was maybe a little less than 90 degrees, um, you know, from the, from where the person was looking out from the window. And she's this person, I remember felt pretty confident that Sasquatch is looking at her. And then it just continued kind of nonchalantly. Um, but now did yours run away? Because that's where we got to so far. You saw this thing, it turned to you, it went back to twirling the thing in the lake. Like how did this encounter end? Well, see that, that kind of uh, involves what I was getting at because it looked at me through its peripheral vision, 
And then it just went back to what it's doing. It just stayed right there. It, it was just going to keep doing whatever it was doing, regardless of me. It did not make any attempt to flee at that moment. It looked at me through its peripheral vision, went right back to what it was doing. Like it, it couldn't care less that I was there. And what did you do? I went back to my friend and I said, that's a fucking Bigfoot. Let's get out of here. <laughs> and so, and so what I did at that point, I, I drove out of that parking lot and there's uh, another parking lot at kind of a 90 degree angle from the one where I was. And I drove in there to, uh, to shine my headlights onto the beach where I had been to get a better look, to, to see it from the front. And at, and at that point I didn't see anything. It, it was gone. But my friend said that he saw eye shine from the tree line. So it, it, so that it waited until we were gone and then it fled. I can't help thinking though that that was such a missed opportunity because, like, remember Cliff? We had Sarah, the woman backpacker, that had that encounter in the Marble Mountains where it ran by screaming. She had that encounter the year before where she said there was something limping on two legs on the hillside, like crying out, and she got the overwhelming sense that it was injured and wanted help. And it seems like this guy wanted a hug or something. You know, like he was all sad, like moping, like, oh man. I, I could use a hug and of course everyone's going to run away. But I think at this point in time in my life, I would just go, if I had that feeling like it was sad and this, and that, I'd go up and I'd give him a hug. Well, yeah, you give it a hug and then you get your arms ripped off. And then he beats you to death with your own arms. So, Oh, but what a way to go. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, there, there are worse ways to die. I mean, that, that there's some honor in that, you know? Uh, and yes, Bobo, I feel that that was a huge missed opportunity. And I kind of kicked myself in the butt for that. I, I think at this point in my life, I would definitely stick around and, you know, observe whatever I could observe or interact in whatever way I possibly could. But at that time, you know, I was a 17 year old kid alone in the wilderness with a monster. So, you know, I just decided to get the hell out of there. I wouldn't call your friend a monster without knowing him personally. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, he, he, he's a gentle soul. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Uh, but seriously, I think, I, I, think, I think if someone like in that situation, like if you talked real soft and calm voice and like squatted down like non-threatening and just I really wonder what, I don't think he'd hurt you. I mean, cause you know, it had the opportunity and it just didn't, I think if he tried to, you know, empathize with it, I think, I mean, it'd be super hard to do, but I think, I mean, I don't know what would happen, but I'd really be interested to see what would happen. I mean, cause you hear people talk about like, you know, the forest people, people on, on, on that end of things, you know, they talk about like, Oh, like they're sad. They just want to, you know, hear like a soft voice, talk nice to them and maybe give them a treat. I agree with you in that line of thinking. I, I have been in that line of thinking recently myself. Like, what is the best way to behave if I'm, you know, face to face with a Sasquatch in the woods? And I thought myself, you know, it, it would be a good idea to, to maybe sit down and face slightly away from it, but not too much away. Just not, you know, directly, you know, facing it head on. And, and, you know, speak softly and maybe make some welcoming hand gestures. 
Well, which comes back to that peripheral vision thing again, because I, th- I think that there's a reason for it. In primates, and in fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and say all mammals, I know it's true for a lot, of, a lot of mammals, dogs and bears and mountain lions, looking directly at them is a straight out threat. It's an F you to their personal, you know, their personality, like, like I am challenging you. And I think that Sasquatches are not, everybody knows they're rather shy and retiring and all that sort of stuff. Like they, They're not most of them and catch them in the right mood. They're not going to be threatening to you at all. And so I think that uh, the, the, the observation that Sasquatches often use their peripheral vision to observe you while you're in close range is part of that. I think that it might actually, at least it suggests that, that um, it's not there to threaten you. It's not trying to dominate you. It's not trying to be, you know, alpha primate on the block sort of thing. It's just there and it's not, not bothering. And, and so I think that's part of it too. Like if you ever do have an opportunity to, to another, to observe a Sasquatch at close range again, try not to look at it directly uh, just to see what happens. Maybe that would extend the observations, you know, avert your gaze a bit and check it out through your own peripheral vision, just like they do. Because, you know, if you want to know, like if you're in a, a, a strange, like a, a strange culture or a different co- country or something, a lot of times all you can do is observe the people there and copy their reactions. And when you're face to face with a Sasquatch, that might be a good plan of attack, uh, so to speak, if attack is even the right word, you know, um, to follow their lead, use their same mannerisms and see what happens unless you interpret them as being aggressive, of course. Right, of course. Uh, maybe a, a good plan of uh, not attack, a good approach to uh, a peaceable encounter. And yeah, I absolutely uh, agree with that. I mean, this the same behavior extends even into humans. Of course, this would this would you know be reflected in the Sasquatch as well. I mean, we, you know, we're, we talk about varying human cultures, you know, one doesn't make eye contact in certain situations. So yeah, I mean, this is ubiquitous. This is something that exists throughout the entire mammalian world, at least. Direct eye contact can be threatening. Peripheral vision, not not so much. So yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a good way to go about it. I, uh, that makes perfect sense. Now, Cliff, you mentioned something about just how human they are or how human-like they are. And this is a big point of interest for me. And there's there's one thing I want to talk about as pertains to this. The variation in hair color and uh, all these variations in itself, to, to me, I mean, you guys are the seasoned investigators, but to me, just with my own thoughts, this indicates just how closely related they are to us because there's a wide variation of hair color and wide variation in, in humans. To me, what, what does that say about the, their numbers, the numbers of their breeding population? I mean, they, they need at least 4,000, but the great genetic variation that we see in them, uh, could that possibly indicate a much greater number than even that? I think they're pretty rare, man. I mean, I, I, I've picked up somewhere along the line, and I don't know where. I, I mean, maybe some of our listeners can email us and, and give us a source, or just tell me I'm wrong. Give me a source and show I'm wrong. I love being wrong, because that means I get to learn something. But at some point or another, if I remember right, the human, homo sapien population on the planet bottlenecked to about 10,000. Um, at some point, I'm sure, maybe, have you heard the same thing? I'm not off, off base here, right? And I, I think 10,000 feels like a really good number for um, maybe continent-wide uh, population of Sasquatches. And worldwide, maybe maybe even worldwide, I don't know, maybe ten or 30,000 or something worldwide. I don't know uh, if, if those things on the other side of the oceans are indeed Sasquatches and not some sort of other species. But I tend to think they're prob- some of them are at least Bigfoots. You know, I don't know, um, of course, but there's some other differences in there that could indicate a new species. But it's hard to say. 
yeah, so there's that. Right. And that right there at least doubles the minimum for, for what uh, would, would, would be necessary for a breeding population. I mean, we're just speculating here, of course, but I mean, it seems likely to me. And as far as the, the species being spread out throughout the world, I mean, I know you guys have been to Australia a few times checking things out down there. Uh, it seems that there are at least two different hominin species in, in Australia. I feel that it seems likely that the Yowie is the same species or a variation of the same species. How do you feel about that, Cliff? I agree. I, 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 that was one of the questions we had going down there. I remember Bobo and I even talking about it while we were down there, saying like, okay, all the local researchers say these things are cannibals and you shouldn't, they're scary and stuff like that. Let's find out. Let's go find out if these things are going to eat us alive or just knock back at us, or if they knock at all for that matter. And when we were down there, um, Bobo heard some mumbling and stuff. He can tell you about that. And I got into some sort of uh, knocking, actually clapping is what I was doing. But whatever I was doing, it was doing it back to me. Even when I did two of it, it did two back to me. And then later on, not a half hour later, probably, uh, maybe 40 minutes, I guess, um, something went at us from across the river and then pushed down a tree. Or maybe the tree came first. I don't remember. I have to go back and check the tape. But yeah, and it showed all the behaviors of Bigfoot to me, man. So I'm inclined to think that Yowies are just Bigfoots, you know, misplaced. Right, right. Uh, yeah, and from my point of view, just an armchair researcher who's just now getting into the investigative side of things, I mean, it has always seemed to me that, that that is most likely the case. I mean, like I said, you guys are the seasoned researchers. I'm just some guy who who just sits back and reads stuff and watches TV. But it just that's the way it seems to me, just as an intelligent person who's observing this. It seems like they must be the same species. And another, uh, another interesting parallel that, I mean, who knows what it means, but the fact is the indigenous American people and the indigenous Australian people happen to be two populations where there is a particularly high concentration of Denisovan DNA. And in those two places, we also find these, we also find Sasquatches or this, you know, this species in these, on, on these two different continents. Now, I'm not trying to say that Sasquatches are Denisovans. There, there's a huge difference between these two hominin species, but it does indicate to me that there might be some sort of chapter there that we've missed that that's been omitted from the the book of human history uh or it, it could point the way to how humans sasquatches denisovans have been proliferated throughout the earth i think there's something there there's, there's a clue there i feel well there's something going on it is interesting that you brought that up because um you know, we know that Neanderthals, of course, interbred with humans, with Homo sapiens um, in Europe, where Neanderthals are native. Um, but uh, and we, of course, we know now that Denisovans also do the same thing. Um, that's uh, the Himalayan, the people who live in the Himalayas, like in Nepal and Tibet and whatever. They have larger lung capacities because that gene has been associated with Denisovans or Denisovans or however you say it. Um, so it, we know that that sort of thing happened. Um, but you know, I was talking to Meldrum about this a couple of years ago, and one of the, he brought up something that I had never even occurred to me. It's like he said that yeah everybody's making a big deal about how humans and neanderthals and you know by proxy uh, denisovans um interbred with humans um but i what i think is even this is dr meldrum speaking what what he he thinks is equally if not more interesting is why it didn't happen more you know i think that's a really interesting question and, and i think that also can um 
has is is tangentially pertinent to the Sasquatch thing. Like if these stories from the indigenous people in North America of Sasquatch abductions, abducting their females and whatever else, and then um, possibly breeding with them, you got to wonder why doesn't it happen more? Well. I mean, who's to say it didn't happen more in the ancient past? I mean, like we were just talking about a, a, a genetic bottleneck effect. I mean, this bottleneck has occurred probably a number of times throughout history. Just because we have low percentage of Neanderthal and Denisovan or Denisovan DNA doesn't mean there wasn't all kinds of interbreeding going on. Uh, and, you know, those ancestors died out and we, we don't. We, we don't have the benefit of their DNA. I mean, maybe it did go on much more than we think it did. Yeah, possibly. Possibly. Yeah. It, well, that, that's the neat thing about um, paleoanthropology. And I would recommend anybody who's interested in Sasquatches, like you're doing a disservice to yourself if you don't look into paleoanthropology and learn about the hominin family tree of which we are all members. Because um, it, it gives us some insight to what other, um, well, first of all, what other unknown hominins might be wandering around the world, like the Almasty and Almas and over in the Caucasian mountains, um, the Caucasus mountains. Uh, th- that area like has something else. I don't think those are Bigfoots. And you know, by learning about the hominin family tree, it might shed some light on this. Um, I think it's a big disservice for people not to look into human evolution when they're interested in Sasquatches. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it, you have to view it in the broader picture of things for sure. And, uh, I, I mean, the, the, the whole hominin story is such a complex one. I mean, obviously we're finding this out more and more every day. It's, you know, all these various branches, going off in different directions. And uh, for me, there is, I mean, I mean, you know, you guys are Bigfoot and beyond. This is where, for me, it goes into the beyond part. I, I am looking for a spiritual clue in all of this. Um, now, re- regardless of my own ideas, whatever the truth turns out to be, it's, it's equally fascinating. I'm not trying to impose my own thoughts on this, on this, uh, you know, in this area of inquiry, um, but I, but I do have my own thoughts about it. I do. I am looking for perhaps the origin of non-local consciousness in the Earth in this broad story of uh, human hominin development and various various other clues like this. I think we're we're looking at a moment when consciousness that does not originate in the material world entered the material world. Um, I, I think there are clues there. Oh, yeah, I was going to say something about the origin of art. You know, like the, the, at first there was the thinking that, you know, this there was this explosion of art that occurred maybe 130,000 years ago. Now they're pushing it back, of course. That thinking goes that maybe this explosion of art occurred, you know, anywhere between 290,000 and 700,000 years ago. So it keeps getting pushed back farther and farther. But we know that art exploded on the human scene all at once, you know, at, at some point. And I want to know, did it correspond to this moment or, you know, was it, was there, did it develop during this period of time? And do we see, you know, does this point the way toward non-physical consciousness entering the material world? And like I said, you know, these are just my thoughts. I'm not trying to impose that on, on anything. I'm not trying to impose it on my own inquiry into this area. I mean, even, even if we're just looking at the, the pure, the purely physical aspect of it, it, it's still equally fascinating. But but these are my thoughts. I don't know if we'll ever get answers to that. But, you know, that's one of the interesting things, uh, because, again, look, looking at paleoanthropology and study and learning as much as I can about it, you know, within within reason, um, 
one of the indicators of, of humanity. It's like, what, what makes us human, right? And people have pointed to tool use. Well, well, that, that doesn't work. I mean, sea otters use tools. Crows use tools. All the other ape species use tools to some degree, right? So it can't be tool use. Um, language, well, maybe, but what is really language? Language uh, isn't communication because most things communicate. I mean, uh, I mean, cephalopods, squid, and whatever they and octopi, they they communicate by colors on their skin. You know, like they can't keep a secret because whatever their mood is, they're communicating it to the world, right? which might be a far more advanced form of communication than we have ourselves, frankly, because what we are stuck with, which is what is getting back to what you were saying, is symbolic thought, where um, there is a symbol for something that means something else. And um, a good example of this is the word bobo. Okay, I just made a silly little noise with my mouth, bobo, small mouth noise, right? But um, really what that stands for is my friend who, who I've gone through thick and thin with and I, I have business ventures with and I've spent years on the road with. There's all this other stuff that goes into the idea, the, sim, like the thing that the, the, the sound bobo symbolizes. You know, that's what symbolic thought is or art. You know, you look at something and it represents something else for you, you know, um, and, and looking at the cave paintings from the Neanderthal or whatever from France. and that, that, that definitely is strong evidence for symbolic thought because they drew a picture of a horse and there's horses outside. That picture is not the horse. It stands for the horse. That is a, a signature of humanity, right? Now, now we know that the other ape species have that sort of thing too with Coco the gorilla and there's I think there's an orangutan, I don't know this name, who does the same sort of thing and then chimpanzees are communicating with these sort of things and even dogs are, are communicating to, with some level of sim symbolism. The hardcore skeptic behavioral scientists are saying, no, they're just trained. Well, I don't buy it. It seems that they're, they're forming their own like uh, forming their own sentences and ideas. I don't think that th these, these curmudgeons are on the right track here. Um, so where does that lie in? Where does this symbolic thought come from? Because if gorillas are doing it, then do, don't we have to look at our last common ancestor and assume they did it too? Um, but maybe ours is certainly more well-developed um, than gorillas. And certainly we have better fine motor skill than gorillas. So we can create these fantastic pieces of art and music and language and everything. Um, because that's the main sticking point from what I understand. I could be wrong. Again, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, between the, the other ape species and producing language is it's actually the fine motor control. And I, I think there's some physical differences in the throat, too. I, um, the hyboid bone or something like that, if I remember right. Which Neanderthals, I think, had. If, I, if I'd have to go back and double check, of course. But th that symbolic thought thing is the sticking point. And when you look at Sasquatches, if, and that's a big if for me, because I, I don't think the evidence is there yet. If Sasquatches are making structures or glyphs or, or making these little balls, you know, weave like cedar balls and things like that, um, is that an attempt at that? Is that their expression of symbolic thought? And that would tell us a lot about how closely we're related. Uh, maybe not uh, phylogenically, but but like how much of a, of a brother are the a brother and sister are these things? You know, walking in our backyards. Right. Uh, and I do agree with you about dogs, for example, and uh, about, you know, it, it, I, I try to give animals more credit than than science typically would. And the, there, there's more going on. So I, I agree with you about that. And yes, there is nothing uh, specifically about humanity where one thing only belongs to us. And, and it, there's nothing that just says, yeah, this is it. This is what makes us us. But I feel that there is a difference in the way we use the same things that we have in common with other animals that does set us apart and does show 
uh, point the way toward uh, a, a non-local consciousness. Um, like chimps, for example, they I think they've been known to make certain designs that could be interpreted as a form of art or at least related to our concept of art um, and and language and tools. Just like you said, none of it, is, it belongs only to humans. But I think th there is an expression of consciousness in the way that we use these things that I think does point the way to non-local consciousness. Quite possibly. I, I've, I've, I've an interesting idea, and I don't know how, if there's evidence for it or whatever. Um, an interesting idea I picked up at some point is like uh, people often think that consciousness starts with the brain, you know, so um, uh, physical matter begets consciousness. But there's some physicists out there, and I read an article last year or year before about it. And I, I have an interesting idea. I haven't chased it down very far, but I, I like I like toying with interesting ideas, um, philosophical and uh, philosophical ideas or ideas about the universe. They're, they're just fun to think about. It's a good way to stretch your brain muscles, right? Um, we, the general model is that um, physical matter will eventually create life. Life will eventually create consciousness. So consciousness is born out of matter. But there's this, this whole, there's this, these renegade physicists that are kind of wondering if it's not the opposite, if that uh, consciousness, cre consciousness itself creates the matter. Exactly. Yes. That's, that's kind of where I'm thinking with all of this. And then our brains are just receptors. They're just like cool. They're like they're like the bunny ears TV uh, TV antennas, you know. That uh, we can we just get a little a, a narrow bandwidth of this larger consciousness that we're born into. So exactly, such is my thinking. Well, consciousness manifests in the body in any number of ways through the endocrine system, through the biochemical, uh, electrochemical processes of the body. I, I feel that consciousness is manifesting in those ways. And, and what we do when we're doing something physical, anything physical, we are actually interacting with, the, you know, our, it is actually non-local consciousness interacting with the material world in, in, in any given moment, moment to moment. Yeah, that's something to think about. It's so hard to wrap words about around stuff like that because words themselves are the symbols and, you know, they, they, they kind of fall far short to begin with. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you there. But Bobo, what do you think? I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Yeah, I, I go down that hole like you just what you got what and chicken or the egg and all that when it comes to the consciousness issue. Well, I think the further we go into these things, the more we're going to uncover something one way or the other. I, 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 I do fear for how we interpret these things. I think we need to have a broad enough perspective to properly interpret things. I think even science today, there's a, there's a very non-scientific or unscientific culture within the scientific community where, where we see a lot of scientists who take anything but a scientific approach to things. And that's because of culture. That's because of a, of a pre-existing mindset. So I think we need to have a broad enough perspective to truly interpret things uh, objectively and, and see where it takes us. Yeah, you have to, the, we have to be fish removing ourselves from the water, which, of course, kills fish, but hopefully it doesn't do that to us. Uh, culture is not our friend. Culture tells us how to think and what's appropriate behavior, um, which could be helpful, like you don't want to hurt people. But at the same time, you also want to be held back by some shared belief system. Come on. I mean, you should, everybody should be themselves as loud as they possibly can. Take Bobo's lead on that one. Right. Absolutely. Well, this is Bigfoot and Beyond, and I think Sam has established himself as a you know, 
grounded, intelligent, uh, reason-based person, but but a large thinker at the same time, right? But he is looking into the beyond aspects because he's got into Bigfoot because of his setting. So he's been getting into Bigfoot, you know, investigations and research. But that has led him into some strange other kind of entities reported. Sam, could you give us a, give us a rundown on, on that? Oh, yeah. You know, actually, I, I lost my home and everything else in the campfire in paradise. And I chose to come to Siskiyou County specifically because of the Sasquatch and other phenomena that are concentrated in this area. And uh, I am looking into all sorts of things that are that are going on in this area. So much incredible stuff coming from very credible people. I have, uh, I'm investigating a reptilian humanoid sighting in Dunsmere. And this is from a very credible source, a professional person, a well-educated person, uh, very, very credible people experiencing very incredible things. And I actually have a theory about Mount Shasta itself, if you guys want to hear it. It goes down the rabbit hole a little bit. Now, in in order to, to provide a little uh, background for for this theory, one has to kind of accept that certain orthodox thoughts about prehistory are, are, are inaccurate. And I'm referring specifically to the Great Pyramid. Now, orthodox Egyptology would have us believe that the Great Pyramid was built around 2500 BC. There is plenty of evidence to suggest that the Great Pyramid was actually built around 10,500 BC, around the time of the last Ice Age. And for those who wish to look into this, there's, there's, you know, there's plenty of information out there. I would start with Graham Hancock, and I would also look into the material given to us by Edgar Casey. Now, and 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 using this as kind of a foundation of understanding what I'm saying. So, for for the time being, let's take it for granted that the Great Pyramid was built in 10,500 BC, and uh, it appears that when the Nile was much closer to the Great Pyramid, the uh, the waters from the Nile were intentionally diverted underneath the Great Pyramid to, for, for the purpose of creating percussion waves that would cause the Great Pyramid itself to vibrate with uh, an initiate inside in the king's chamber lying down. Uh, the, the, the granite with which the Great Pyramid is made uh, is, is rich in quartz. We know that when quartz vibrates, it creates electricity. We know that that vibration, we know that electromagnetic energy these things affect consciousness. So uh, let's so so let's have the understanding right now that water from the Nile is causing waves underneath the Great Pyramid that cause the Great Pyramid itself to vibrate. Now, what natural phenomenon does this remind us of? The underground rivers under like the Amazon and stuff like that. Is that what you're talking about? Well, okay, I'm talking specifically about the action of a volcano. A volcano has great, uh, you know, great volcanic forces underneath the ground, deep underground, that, it, that, that are, you know, ramming against this structure, this huge mountain, causing vibrations, causing, you know, minerals, quartz, etc., to vibrate. So, essentially, what I'm saying is that I feel that uh, the volcanic the deep volcanic action of Mount Shasta and, and Mount Shasta, you know, as part of the ring of fire, it is considered a spiritual twin to Mount Fuji for that very reason. I feel that volcanoes like this, they, they, they have a certain vibrational frequency that itself either affects consciousness, allowing one to perceive certain phenomena that, that, that one may not be able to perceive 
elsewhere or at a greater distance from a volcano, or it's creating vibrational frequency itself that attracts uh, certain uh, or, or that opens a sort of gateway allowing us to experience these phenomena. So I think the volcanic action of Mount Shasta causes a vibrational frequency that allows for the phenomena in this area to occur as it does. Now, how would one test that? Well, I don't know, but I know it's a—I <laughs> know it's my theory. And and it, for me, it comes about after a long time of looking into these things pertaining to the Great Pyramid and consciousness. And you know, I mean, you know, we 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 know that that helmets with. Uh, that uh, generate an electromagnetic energy can induce what is, is similar to a religious experience. So we know these things, and, and we know that volcanoes have you know, this, this deep volcanic action going on. We know that there are minerals all around Mount Shasta. We know that it's rich in quartz, etc. So I, rather than testing, I'm just looking at what already exists in our knowledge. And for me, it's just a, a theory that stands out that seems like something that, that could be very real. So for whatever reason, whether that's true or not, there is a high concentration of things occurring in this area. And as a matter of fact, I was recently out on the highway, uh, 97, where there's just this beautiful spot, like the most ideal spot one could possibly have for taking pictures of Mount Shasta. And I was taking pictures of it to use for the artwork for my podcast. So I'm taking these pictures. I, I use a Nikon P1000, which has a 125 times zoom, which is equivalent of 3000 millimeters, like a just ridiculous zoom built into this camera. And that's why I bought it because I wanted to use it for squatching among other things, but in large part squatching, I just really wanted this extreme zoom. So I'm taking these pictures of Mount Shasta with my Nikon P1000. I bring the, the raw files home. I'm looking at them on my laptop and I zoom way in and I happen to zoom in to the right side of the peak. And uh, right on the right side of the peak, there is in the sky what appears to be a cylindrical object. And, and I zoom in and I can see, even though it's very pixelated, I can see that there is uh, that, that it is actually a physical object. It's, it's not an artifact. It, it's not an aberration. It is actually a physical object in the sky to the right side of the peak. And the next picture I took a few moments later, that same cylindrical object was, was then on the left side of the peak. And I didn't see any of this with my naked eye, but, but I was fortunate enough to be able to get it with my extreme zoom lens of my Nikon P1000. So there, there's, there's stuff happening here all the time that we see or don't see. Um, like I said, I mentioned this reptilian sighting in Dunsmuir. I became aware recently of another reptilian sighting in Mount Shasta. Um, I don't know anything further beyond that, but I have investigated this location in Dunsmuir. And this is actually really, really, this is just right above uh, on the cliff above black bart's hideout where the the hedge creek falls um where black bart is thought to have hidden out so there are caves there 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 are all sorts of natural areas that would make sense for a reptilian humanoid to frequent oh and and this witness the same witness by the way she 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 was playing in these woods as a little girl and she would hear these uh, footsteps. She and her friend were out there playing. They, they would hear footsteps following them all the time. And rather than thinking of a reptilian, I was thinking, you know, that sounds very much like Sasquatch behavior, like it, that a Sasquatch would be following them around in these woods. And I mentioned this to her, and she said that her dad swore that he saw a Sasquatch in those woods. So we have two phenomena occurring here, possibly. We have the reptilian humanoid, and we have a Sasquatch. Um, and these, these are just uh, among 
these are just a few among the the many things I'm looking at to, into at the moment. I I'm currently speaking with someone in the Fort Jones area about some really really strange phenomena going on on his property that he and his wife have experienced over the past years or the past year rather um she unfortunately passed away due to an embolism just a couple of weeks ago and um these these two people together were in tuned with this incredible experience where they were experiencing these interdimensional beings and there's just all kinds of stuff going on that both is external and internal and objective and objective and subjective so it, there's just an incredible amount of stuff to unravel here and and that's that's what i'm working on well shasta definitely is a weird epicenter you know um a lot of weird things are reported out of there now when you mentioned these these lizard folk these reptilian sort of things um have you read lyle blackburn's book i have not i'm familiar with lyle, lyle blackburn but i have not read the book yeah, I, I've not read it either because I'm mostly a Bigfoot guy or whatever. But um, he he does go pretty deep into that subject as well. And his his takeaway, I asked him about it, and um, he says, yeah, people are seeing weird things. But he did say that a significant number of um, of, of the reports that he personally looked into, he thinks are misinterpretations of actually observing a Sasquatch. So it's, it's interesting that you brought that up about the Dunsmuir one. You know, I, I questioned my witness about that very thing. It, it was at nighttime, and I was thinking, you know, the low lighting, maybe this was a misidentified Sasquatch. What what actually happened was that this witness at the time was a child. She was watching TV. There was a, a window behind the t- TV that was seven feet off the ground. They didn't, her parents didn't bother to put a curtain on this window because it was so high up that they thought nobody could, could see into it. So she's watching TV, this being just passes from right to left stops in front of the window turns and looks at her and there's uh this extended moment where they're making eye contact and then it continues on its way so i was thinking trying to make sense of this well i mean there are a number of things that could that could lead that could factor into a misidentification here and this in fact could be a sasquatch um you know she mentioned that it had cobbled skin it had gray skin no hair. You know, I was thinking maybe this is a Sasquatch with mange. I, I ruled out that possibility because of, of any number of other things that she said. Like there was no nose structure. She did see two nostrils, but there was no nose structure. And she saw, you know, broad, broad, a broad mouth with no lips. She saw completely solid black eyes. Um, she, and like I said, she, she mentioned the cobbled reptilian like skin. So, so yeah, I did look into the possibility that this was a misidentified Sasquatch, uh, in this particular case, I have come to the, to the conclusion that it is not. Well, yeah, who knows, man, who knows? I, I wasn't there. So, right. That's exactly it. I mean, cause you talk to these credible people, like our manager Lee saw a dog man. I mean, reliable, smart Credible people have these studies you just can't explain. It's just, I mean, you can explain the Bigfoot, but the other stuff is just nuts. Right. What What is one to make of this? I mean, when presented with evidence of something that exists beyond even what, what I mean, Bigfoot, at least there's precedent for it. You know, there are primates, there are hominins, there's, there's some kind of precedent for it, even though it's unexpected and seemingly unlikely from a scientific point of view, they exist and, and it's, it's far fetched to some, but at least people can wrap their head around it. When it comes to a, to a reptilian humanoid and to a dog man, I mean, what the hell, what the hell is, is someone to make of this? I mean, it's coming from credible people. 
and the sightings are credible, and 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 often the observations themselves are detailed. So, I mean, all indication is that they saw what they believe they saw, but what the hell is somebody to make of that? You know, reptilians and dogmen. There's no precedent for any of it in insofar as the Western mindset is concerned. I don't have an answer for that one. Yeah, I don't either. That's why I'm looking into it, because it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm really interested in that stuff, but I just don't look into it. I just don't spend any time on it, because I know Bigfoot's in this three-dimensional world at least part of the time or all the time. There's just that can keep you busy for many lifetimes. So I just kind of I'm interested in all that stuff. I love hearing about it, but I just don't spend much time looking into it. Yeah, it's kind of where I'm at too. Like I, I know Sasquatches are just real kind of boring animals. Frankly, I like the cryptozoology stuff. I like species that may actually be there um, all the time. You know, physical reality sort of stuff. Because everything else, and I, I mentioned this, I think on uh, the podcast we did recently with the guy from Montana Vortex, is that all the other paranormal stuff, if you want to call it paranormal stuff, um, it all comes down to subjectivism. It all comes down to um, complete trust in the observer and their linguistic skill to communicate what they saw. Um, and that's not good enough. I mean, it's fun. I enjoy it. I love, I mean, the weirder, the better. I, I really enjoy the weird stuff. But what do you do with it? Because what else is there besides a story at the end of the day? Right. And I've had very much the same thoughts and feelings that you guys are expressing. You know, when I first decided, you know, what am I going to do? What am I going to look into? I decided Sasquatch because Sasquatch is on the ground. It's not in the sky. It's not a light in the sky that I can't chase. Sasquatch is on the ground. There's a way of, you know, tracking and, and interacting. And it's, you know, it's, it's something mundane in the truest sense of the word. So it's something that is tangible. Uh, when it comes to these other things, not so much. But at the same time, when I hear about them, and when, I, I can't ignore it. Uh, when when there's something that is uh, credible, I, I can't just dismiss it and say, well, I'm going to focus on something else. I mean, I'm huge into Sasquatch. I love Sasquatch. I, I want to have those answers before I die. So, uh, you know, Sasquatch is a very main focus for me. But I, I but I have to look into the other things as well. I mean, I can't just say, well, you know, who knows and shrug my shoulders. I have to, when there's something that I can investigate, I have to do that. So that's what I'm doing with Sasquatch and, and all manner of phenomena like this. Well, God, I sure appreciate that. That means I don't have to do it. Yeah, well, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah, well, my, my good friend Tom Powell says the same thing. So, Clef, I'm glad you're looking into the whole physical thing because that means I don't have to do it. I, say, ah, I feel the same way about you, Tom. So, yeah, perfect. Yeah, that's why, and I think that's great that we all have our own interests and we all do what, what, what we want to. We all spend time on what we think is is worth spending our time on, you know. And um, it, it's it's because the, certainly the universe is full of mystery, and we'll never get to the bottom of this thing. And we'll be we'll be lucky to know when we're dead. Right. Sure. But I, I mean, I think trying to tackle the mystery itself is a way of expanding human consciousness. And I think that's why we're confronted with it, to expand our consciousness. I mean, it's like the, the monolith that appears suddenly among the Australopithecines in 2001, a space odyssey. You know, it's just a bunch of apes, and then this monolith appears, and then, oh, suddenly they're using bones as tools. You know, it expands their thinking. And I think confronting these mysteries in itself, whether we get answers or not, it expands human consciousness, and uh, so that's that's what I'm after. That's right. Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo is a human consciousness expanding drug podcast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no drugs necessary. You just listen to the words. It's perfect. Yeah, it's barely addictive at all. <laughs> 
well, I enjoy it, so maybe that makes it addictive. <laughs> well, Sam, I mean, I thought where I was going to listen to a Bigfoot sighting here, and it just got really out there and really weird, and I absolutely loved it. I love thinking about these philosophical ideas and consciousness and all that sort of thing, because when you start tracking down one weird thing, like a Bigfoot, it often leads to other weird ideas. So I can't thank you enough for sharing with us uh, your sighting report and being so open about your other thoughts and all that other stuff. So um, you you obviously an intelligent guy. Um, you're well-spoken. You um, like thinking about things on the fringe and on pushing the envelope. Where can people learn more about what you're into? Do you have a blog or do you have a podcast? Do you have a, a, a website or do you have, what, what do you got? Like if people want to learn more about what you're, you're talking about. People can check out my podcast. As a matter of fact, I do not, as of the time of this recording, have an episode published. I, I am waiting on some laptop repairs at the moment, but uh, publishing an episode is imminent. And my podcast is called Type 471. That's T Y P E 471. And my URL is type471.podbean.com. You hear me on there. I'm going to be one of his first guests. That's right. Bobo's coming on soon. I'm looking forward to that. Fantastic. And Cliff's going to be on there, too. I'm nominating Cliff to be a guest. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. There's no way you're getting out of that one, Cliff. You're, you're coming oh, on I wouldn't want to. Sure. Oh, good. Good. Happy to do it. Let's get weird. Yeah. Oh, let's get super weird. I love it. I'm looking forward <laughs> to it. Thanks, you guys. Thanks so much for joining us, Sam. Sure appreciate it. And I look forward to being a guest on your podcast soon. Well, Bobo, good score, man. That was not only a great Bigfoot report with its interesting behaviors, as you noted, it got weird at the end. And there's nothing I like more than weird. Yeah, because, and especially when, you know, we had the previous hour sort of establish that Sam's a sober minded individual, you know, well thought out, well spoken. So when you hear someone like that get into the weird, it's like it makes you, it gives it more credence. Yeah, the weird is all around us. You just have to kind of embrace it. And, um, you know, that's why I that's why I do Bigfoot stuff, because I was always interested in weird stuff. But Bigfoot is one of these things that the more I learned about it, the less weird it became. And I'm actually at the point where Sasquatches are just kind of boring, real animals at this point, um, based on the evidence that has come to me in my personal experiences. But it always starts out with the weird. And I think that any new idea, new thing that anybody wants to chase down does start with this weird, crazy idea. And the more you learn about it, the more tame that idea might become. And of course, everybody out there, if you want to, if you want to like help promote the show, the best thing you could probably do is wear a t-shirt of ours or a hoodie. Bobo and I have made these uh, Bigfoot and Beyond t-shirts and hoodies. They're, they're available in a variety of colors um, and straight from the only source, sasquatchprints.com. Um, you can get our, uh, our swag out there, our merchandise stuff. So go check it out. It's a great way to advertise the podcast. I wear my shirt all the time in the shop. People ask me about it. Um, so yeah, uh, do that for us. It would be helpful. Yeah, yeah, we appreciate it. Well, cool, Cliff. That was a great episode. I'm looking forward to next week. We've got another good witness coming up. So, uh, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Hit like, hit share, spread the word. And until next week, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 